Let me invite your attention to the 19th Psalm. The 19th Psalm. The vision statement I've been proposing is as follows. That Beach Haven Baptist Church will follow Christ as Lord as a global church. A combination of local and global uh, missions commitments. By winning, baptizing, and training great commissionaries. A simple restatement of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. From all nations, tribes, peoples, tribes, languages of the athens Clark County region. Now the priorities that flow from that are as uh, follows. One, Christ-like faith, hope, and love are great commissionary hearts. And the way we learn what it means to be Christ-like is to look at Jesus in His Word. We know no other Jesus than what we find in the Bible. The second is, is this. Not only Christ-like faith, hope, and love, but the second uh, happens to be worship. And worship uh, will be great commissionary worship. We'll consider, uh, of course, and calculate primarily the exaltation of the Lord, and we'll consider our community as well. Third happens to be Sunday school. Great commissionary cultivation. From the youngest to the oldest, we want to cultivate and raise up great commissionaries who have a heart and practice of the Great Commission. Fourth is discipleship. This is great commissionary or evangelism, great commissionary outreach. Fifth is great commission training or discipleship. Let me ask you this question. What do those priorities have in common? There's one thing that each of them has in common, and that is they each imply a trust and exaltation of God's Word. Without a Bible, every serious Christian priority is hopeless and vain. And that's what I want to address today. In fact, we've, we've got to get this right and not be like Lori, a six-year-old who was memorizing 1 Samuel 15.22 in her Bible memorization program at church. 1 Samuel 15.22 well, Samuel's word from the Lord to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, is what she was learning. To obey is better than sacrifice. And she saw her three-year-old sister, sister Christy, misbehaving, and she said, Christy, if you don't obey, you will be sacrificed. <laughs> well, we want to be profoundly careful that we get the Scripture right and that we look at it as God intended. Well, uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, trusting God's Word is the subject I would like to address this morning. How is it that we convince and persuade people to become followers of Christ? And how is it that we energize them to follow Jesus faithfully for the balance of their life? Well, there are many answers that have arisen just in my lifetime. Probably the most dominant answer happens to be relationships. In fact, some have gone so far as to say that relationships happen to be the heart and soul of everything that it means to be Christian. I wouldn't entirely disagree with that, and I would say that's rather important. Uh, another answer that's given happens to be creative ministry methods. I've done some of those. I spent an entire summer as a summer missionary engaging in creative evangelism. Uh, a third would happen to be um, a third would happen to be service or social service. And I spent a lot of my ministry in social service. The, the problem that we find with those, however, is surfaced in Dr. Phil's question. How's that working for you? If relationships were going to win people to Christ, why haven't they done so so far? Now, I will tell you, some of my friends have come to Christ. In the last uh, five years, I've seen at least six come to Jesus. 
But it really wasn't because of the relationship. But the relationship was important. I've seen many come to Christ through social service, but the social service didn't save them. And the same is true with creative ministry methods. I think that there is some usefulness in all three of these and many more, but people are not converted and saved as a result of service or relationships or creativity. But those things can help. The relationship between these and the Word of God happens, or, or the salvation experience and the experience of Christian growth, is the same relationship between a vehicle and a destination. Unless the vehicle is put into drive and the accelerator is depressed and the vehicle is steered in the right direction, then the vehicle is not of much use. It really isn't. And the same is true when it comes to relationships, creativity, and service. These things can be a vehicle, but someone has got to put them into drive, depress the accelerator, and steer them in the right direction. And that is the only hope. The power then is found in the Word of God. Now, King David exalts this in Psalms 19. Now, you know about David. Have you ever read his, through his life concentrating just on him? What you'll discover about David is that David had a very modest and humble background. He was a shepherd. He was selected to be king and then soon after hunted and hounded all over Israel for his life. He was betrayed by someone who loved him. His son Absalom chased him off the throne and wanted to murder him. Much of the chaos you see in the Middle East accompanied David in the 10th century B.C. And David, in the midst of all that, as a combination of Israel's executive, legislative, and judicial branch, wrapped up into one after all of his sorrows and the chaos that accompanied his life, still exalted the Word of God, beginning in Psalms 19 in verse 7. He said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults, and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer." David praised God for the power of his word. We need to trust God's word as the primary tool of ministry at Beach Haven Baptist Church and allow it to permeate every one of our priorities. Why should I trust God's word? One, trust God's word because of its specificity. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, praise the Lord for how he's revealed himself in creation. And that's what David does in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. There's almost a speech to creation as well. Verse 2, day into day utter speech, and night into night reveals knowledge. 
There's no speech, there's no language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation doesn't have speech, but it says something. It says something marvelous and awesome about a God who created it. And then he talks about the sun specifically here. In them, the heavens and the firmament, God has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices like a strong man to run its race. In other words, the sun comes out and reveals the great joy of creation. In fact, he's much like a groom running towards his wedding or like a runner about to run a race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Here, David praises the Lord for what he's revealed through creation, but then he finds it necessary in verse 7 to go to the Word of God because it's the Word of God that does what it says in verses 7 through 11. Creation does not get specific enough for it to be the only means by which we know God. Now this segues into a conversation about the theological issue of general versus special revelation. It's something theologians think of, and I think in most ways they're entirely correct. General revelation is that which is generally available to the whole world through creation and conscience. The creation tells us something about God. The conscience tells us something about ourselves, that we're guilty and purposeless without Him. But that is about all that it tells. Special revelation gets more specific about God and His salvation and our guilt and specifically what the problem is. Now, what's the difference between general revelation and special revelation? Well, imagine this. Imagine hearing an explosion and feeling the earth tremble. You ask, what has happened? How can I find safety? You hear an explosion, the earth trembles, and you want to know what happened and where you can find safety. Well, you address that question to Mr. General Revelation. And Mr. General Revelation says, well, other than the earth trembling and you're hearing the explosion and the sirens, I don't provide that kind of information. General Revelation cannot tell us what the problem is or where we find safety. It merely reveals there is a problem. Special Revelation, though, if you give this question to Mr. Special Revelation, here's what he will say. There's been an explosion that has released 500 metric tons of sarin gas into the air. Everyone within 60 miles of this spot will die within 24 hours unless they wear a gas mask. Go to the athens Clark County Police Department located at 3035 Lexington Road, Athens, Georgia, 30605, where Homeland Security has provided a free gas mask. Creation reveals the former, the saving gospel of Christ reveals the latter. It tells us specifically what the problem is, sin. It tells us that we shall die, and it points us to a solution, free grace in Jesus Christ. And that's why David continues on with the special revelation of the Word, beginning in verse number 7. And that leads us to a second word, reason why we need to trust God's Word in ministry, not only because of its specific, specific, uh, how specific it is, but second, <laughs> but because of its source. Now, verses um, 7 through 11 tells us that the source of the Word is God. Now, that's not all that surprising to state that to you, but there are many in the centers of power who would choke on that statement. 
they dismissed the Bible as merely a collection of interesting legends. They dismissed the Bible as the rudimentations and the ruminations of a barbaric ancient primitive people as if we are sophisticated. (laughs) I've got news for them. Uh, But that's how they dismissed the Word of God. I want to say to you that wasn't the view of David and it sure wasn't the view of Jesus on the Word. To come to that conclusion would be to set yourself against Jesus Christ Himself and are you comfortable with that view? The Scripture teaches that the Bible, God's Word, is from God Himself. One, the names of God's Word indicates its source is from God. Look at verse number 7. The law of the Lord. That indicates, in fact, that the law is from God. Then, the testimony of the Lord. The statutes of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The judgments happen to be names for the Word of God. And they indicate that this word comes from God. They all have in character divine authority, and they imply the character of God. God is the one who gives a law. God has personal testimony he wants to share with the world. He is the one who's authoritative enough to deliver statutes. He gives commands, and he is worthy of fear or intense awe over him. And he delivers judgments because he is God and he is authoritative enough to do so. So the names of God's word indicates its source is God. But then second, the nexus or the connection or the link of God's word indicates its source is God. Look what David said. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord a second time is sure. The statutes of of the Lord are right a third time. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. In other words, six times David describes God's word as from the Lord. And he's being rather emphatic here in the text. Hey, the rest of the scripture bears this out, even the Old Testament. The Old Testament claims 2,600 times that it is God's word. Thus says the Lord appears in the Old Testament alone 803 times. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament a thousand times. And Jesus referred to the Old Testament as God's Word Himself. And He pre-certified the inspiration of the New Testament. And the New Testament makes similar claims. So the Scripture has a nexus between its printed page and God Himself. There's a link, there's a connection that convinces me it is from God, its source is God. But then third, the nature of God's Word indicates its source is God. It says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, or it is complete. It needs no embellishments, it needs no additions, it needs no abridgments, it needs no modifications. The word perfect here is a Hebrew word which is actually used of God in Deuteronomy 32, 2 Samuel 22, and Psalms 18 for God himself. But then it goes on to say that in verse number 7, the testimony, the personal witness of the Lord is sure. And the word sure is used of God himself in Deuteronomy 7, in Isaiah 49, and Hosea 11. Verse 8 says, Also, the statutes of the Lord are right. And that indicates that the path God's Word takes you on is true versus a false 
path. Deuteronomy 32 and Psalms 25 use the word right to describe God himself as well. And then verse 8 says that the commandment of the Lord is pure. In other words, it is lucid, it is clear, you can see through it, it gives you a clear path. The word pure or clear is used of God as well in 2 Samuel 22 and 27 and Psalms 18. Then it says, the, in verse number 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. There's no error in it, and Job used that same word in Job 4.17 of God himself. And then verse 9 says, that the judgments, uh, excuse me, the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. These words are used of God Himself in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 63, and Jeremiah 31. It goes on to say in verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are true. One of the most unfortunate sermons preached in all of Christian history happened in the late 80s from a Baptist seminary professor who read this text and complained about the doctrine of inerrancy. And he says, look how the Bible describes itself. Perfect, sure, right, pure, fear, uh, excuse me, clean, true, righteous. And he said, look there, the word inerrancy is not used even once. No, I don't know. I hope that had you been there, you would have been insulted because he would think that you are intellectually deficient enough not to believe that inerrancy is a synonym for true and perfect and sure. The Bible teaches its own inerrancy, and Jesus himself believed it. We'll demonstrate that later. And then he goes on to say, it is righteous, and in Job 4, in Psalms 51, that same word is used of God himself. Beloved, what I want to say to you is this. The words that God uses for his word are words that he uses for himself. Now that makes good sense, doesn't it? I mean, the words that we use for ourselves are words that we can use for our own word. Is that not right? Let me ask you. Let's say that someone is honorable and has integrity. What would you expect of the word of that person? You you expect that person's word to be honorable and full of integrity, right? I've known many people like that. Well, what if a person is a liar? Well, that's a horrible thing to say about someone, but let's imagine we run upon a liar. What would you anticipate about that person's word? Well, that person's a liar because the person lies with his or her words. In other words, who we are is reflected in our word. Therefore, God uses words about himself to describe his word is what he does. Whatever God is, His Word is. Now, the Bible is not God, but the Bible is as connected to God as our words are to us. And therefore, we can expect God's Word to be perfect, sure, right, clear, clean, forever, true, and righteous altogether. In fact, Psalms 138, verse 2, David said, and this is stunning, and I don't know if I've got an adequate explanation for this. But he says in Psalms 138, verse 2, You have magnified your word above all your name. So Scripture is as much a part of God as our word is a part of us, and it bears the marks of who He is. So we trust it because of its source and and, uh, its specificity. But then third, we trust God's word because of its 
sufficiency. Verses 7 through 14, again, David makes remarkable statements here and says that the Bible is enough for these items that are here. He says that the Scripture is sufficient for our world. He says the law of the Lord, in verse 7, is perfect, converting the soul. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, You have known from childhood the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. If you want more conversion, give more scripture to those who don't know the Lord. In fact, I've got a dream of one day leading our whole community in reading every word of the Bible in 90 days. If folks will take 45 minutes to an hour and start reading, they can do it in 90 days. Beloved, I anticipate mass, a large number, a mass number of people to come to Jesus Christ simply because they've read the Word of God. And we'll need to be ready for that. So it is sufficient for our world. It's sufficient for discernment as well. He says in verse number 7, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word simple here has in mind the person who's a simpleton. It it, it, uh, comes from a word which means to open the door. And those who are simple-minded always have their minds open to everything. They don't know when to open it. They don't know when to close it. And when they do, they close it at the wrong time, and they open it at the wrong time. And the Word of God can fix that problem. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Scripture is powerful and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's sufficient for discernment. It's sufficient for sorrow. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart is what God's Word does. Psalms 1, verses 1 through 3, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, and who bears fruit in the right season. God's Word can take care of sorrow. And oh, how I've met him there many times with a broken heart, and he has been good. Then God's Word can take care, ter, uh, take care of questions. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Psalms 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Then it takes care of the future. Verse number 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever forever and ever. The grass may wither, the flower may fade, Isaiah said in Isaiah 48, but the word of our God stands forever. So it is forever, and it takes care of the future. The principles God expects us to live by and what he wants us to believe will never change. Heaven and earth may pass away. His word will not pass away, and the scripture cannot be broken. Then it's sufficient for temptation, verses 11 through uh, 14. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there's great reward. Who can understand four categories of sin? Errors, cleanse me from secret faults, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And the word of God is so powerful that you can pray with integrity, verse number 14. You can pray, verse number 14, with hope. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Susanna Wesley said, as she wrote on the flyleaf of her son John Wesley's Bible, 
Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 3, You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. The word of God can help you have victory over temptation. It is sufficient. It is sufficient for the world, discernment, sorrow, questions, the future, temptations. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, the word of God is sufficient. Now, Billy Graham discovered this as a young man. He had a friend who drifted from the faith and eventually left the ministry who would ridicule him and mock him for his faith in the Bible. And he confused Dr. Graham for a while. And Dr. Graham gives personal testimony to a commitment that he made by faith to the Lord. And here's what he said. One day, some years ago, I decided to accept the Scriptures by faith. There were problems I could not reason through. But when I accepted the Bible as the authoritative Word of God by faith, I found immediately that it became a flame in my hand. That flame began to melt away unbelief in the hearts of many people and to move them to decide for Christ. I found that I could take a simple sermon outline, then put a number of Scripture quotations under each point, and God would use it mightily to cause men to make a full commitment to Christ. I found that I did not have to rely upon cleverness, oratory, psychological manipulation, apt illustrations, or striking quotations from famous men. I began to rely more and more upon Scripture itself, and God blessed it, and I agree with Him. There is power in the Word of God. You need more holiness? Get more Bible. You want more conversions? Give them more Bible. You want more certainty and joy? Get more Bible. The Word of God is sufficient. One of the most tragic things I heard was from a speaker who spoke to my class one day years ago and said, there's no sense in giving them the Bible if they don't believe it. I want to make very clear to you, the power of Scripture depends on God, not the human. Now, they won't be saved until they believe. But the Word of God is powerful, independent of humans, and if they don't believe God's Word, they're not going to believe anything else. You remember in Luke 16, as the rich man was in hell? And he cried out to Abraham to let Lazarus go back out of heaven in a resurrection, apparently, to his father's house where he had five brothers. This man's rotting away in hell, and he's got more of a burden for souls than some churches. And he urges Abraham to let Lazarus pull off a resurrection and go visit his brothers who apparently knew Lazarus. And Abraham said, no. Once we get here, it's fixed. He said, but if one rises from the dead, they'll believe. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. For if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Beloved, if the Word doesn't convince them, they can't be convinced. You run into someone like that? Jesus commands us not to give what's holy to dogs or cast our pearls before swine. And then he says in Matthew 10, 14, shake the dust off your feet. Keep them on your prayer list, but go find someone who's humble enough to embrace the truth of God. Keep going. 
the Word of God is sufficient. Now, what do I do with God's Word? Well, let me ask you this question. Is there anything someone else has that you would like to have? Does someone have a car that you would like to trade up for? Would you like a car like that? Or do you have the same car as someone else, but you want it in the color they have it in? Or do you have the same color and the same car, but you want the bells and whistles and the upgrades that go with it? What about clothing? What about jewelry? Is there something someone else has that you would like to have? Now, Pastor, you're tricking me. You know that's covetousness. It is, but in verse number 10, there's a word used here for what we need to do with the Word of God. More to be desired are they than gold. We are to desire the Word of God. If you covet anything, and the word is also used not only for covet, but also lust. That's the negative use. The positive use is desire. Moreover, they are to be desired more than gold. Yes, even the finest of gold. The first thing to do with God's Word is to desire God's Word more than gold and savor it more than honey. I will say to you, if that's absent or dormant, that's cause for alarm. But there's a second thing. Not only desire it, but know it. Know God's Word more than other works. Recent research has revealed that the number one predictor of spiritual maturity is daily Bible reading. But only 16% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible every day. Only 25% of churchgoers don't read the Bible at all. A little more than 50% read it occasionally. And ladies and gentlemen, many churches need to expand their nurseries, not only for the infants in their first year, but for the infants in their 40th. Because they are not immersed in the Word of God. Well, what can I do? Well, read the Bible through in a year. You can do that by reading four chapters a day. Or take two years by reading two chapters a day. Or you can read 12 books a year. The Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters, one chapter a day for a month. Luke, 24 chapters. You can read that the next month, so on and so forth. So if you don't read it through, you can concentrate on some books. Or you can take a short book, like Colossians, just four chapters. Read it through every day for a month, and then move on to another short book, like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. Read it through every day for a month. In other words, whatever you do, the important thing to do is to have a plan. And if you fail at it, return and get it until you get it right. So know God's Word more than other works. But third, trust God's Word more than other tools. Jesus did. Jesus quoted from 24 Old Testament books and quoted or alluded to the Old Testament 117 times in just three years of preaching. Jesus trusted the Word. Let's exalt the Word of God. Now I've got to tell you that failure at this point is a great sin against God. It means we've neglected Him, rejected Him, or ignored Him. And neglect and rejection and ignorance of God's Word is neglect, rejection, and ignorance of God. And it enslaves us to darkness. But God redeems people from that slavery. He releases them. He breaks the 
he breaks the bonds of canceled sin when they repent and believe the gospel. When they throw off their rejection, they throw off their ignorance, they throw off their neglect of God, and they trust the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle wrote. And then they trust him enough to call out on his name because God promises us, God promises you in Romans 10, 11, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. God does not disappoint those who trust in him. So in just a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are, and a staff member will be here. We want you to throw off God wants you to throw off ignorance and darkness and rejection of Him and His Word and embrace Him for all that He is. And a staff member will be standing here after we pray to help you. Would you pray with me, please? God, this morning, my gratitude overflows. And for many of us, it overflows because of Your Word. In darkness, Your Word has been a candle. When life has been cold, it's been a quilt for our soul. When our hearts have been hungry, it's been nutrition. And when we've been thirsty, it's been a river of clean water. And God, we can't say enough. But we agree where you say, More to be desired are they than gold, yes, fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. For some of us, however, God, the Bible has been a book to ignore more than a feast to devour. In fact, there's enough dust on some of our Bibles to write the word guilty across it. And we have sinfully shown more interest in websites, entertainment, text messages, and other means of human communication and have eliminated divine communication into our life. And no wonder we're so broken and confused and guilty. We praise you, though, that your word reveals a rock and a redeemer one who's crucified and risen and gracious and will forgive. And we pray that your spirit will energize that word of hope even now. I pray that by the time we finish this service, that all the words of our mouths, even in this next song, and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you quickly stand with me, please? You come as God leads you. We want